This is MIT Technology Review. Imagine a world where Google, Amazon, Spotify, and Uber are all one company. Everything from your morning news, music, and groceries to your taxi home at night, all delivered and operated by a single mega corporation. Well, head over to Russia and you'll find that world is very much a reality. If you thought LinkedIn was hot, wait until you get a load of Yandex. The Russian search engine company raised $1.3 billion in an IPO yesterday here in the United States on NASDAQ. And at $25, the stock is valued twice as high on a price-to-earnings basis as Google. What is the big attraction about Yandex? Why are investors so enthusiastic about this? The answer is pretty simple. It's just growth, growth, growth. Yandex is the crown jewel of Russia's Silicon Valley. It has its hands in everything from search to autonomous vehicles. It even got an extra boost from the coronavirus pandemic. Revenue for the company's delivery apps grew 42% in the second quarter of this year. But that success comes at a price. Russia has long viewed the internet as a battleground in its escalating tensions with the West. And some of Russia's power brokers think Yandex is under too much foreign influence. They want Russia to have ultimate control of the massive amounts of data that tech companies hold on Russian citizens. That means Yandex periodically gets caught between the demands of the Kremlin and of the foreign investors who hold most of its stock. But as we'll see today, in a world where debates over how to regulate big tech are intensifying, this isn't just a Russian story. Today, I'm talking to Evan Gershkovich, a journalist for the Moscow Times. He wrote a story in our latest issue, the techno-nationalism issue, about Yandex's balancing act and how it might be seen as a kind of template for tech companies in the rest of the world. I'm Gideon Litchfield, editor-in-chief of MIT Technology Review, and this is Deep Tech. So, Evan, when I lived in Moscow 15 or so years ago, people were already using Yandex Search and Yandex Maps and Yandex Translate. But it seems to have become way, way bigger since then. Can you give us a sense of how important it is? Yandex started expanding very much in the way that Google did over the years, starting from just a search engine to becoming a service that provided or a company that provided a variety of different services. And now when you live in Moscow 15 years later, so many services are connected to this company from ordering food to ride sharing services to figuring out what movies you're going to watch. And this year during the coronavirus crisis, uh, when Moscow was under lockdown, Yandex really became the sort of all-encompassing company because people relied on its taxi service and people also used its food delivery services to ensure they weren't going to the supermarket so much. So it really became the sort of dominant presence in our lives here. How did Yandex get to be so totally dominant in, in a way that not even Google is in the West? How does it beat out the competition? What the company will tell you when you ask them this question is that it's through this diversification. About 10 years ago, around 2012, 2013, the company decided to start diversifying way beyond just the search and the maps, like you had mentioned, it was 15 years ago. If you look at you know their movie recommending service, or if you look at their website that they have where you can buy cars, 
or uh, Navigator, they all have uh, a competitor in Russia. So they don't dominate every single industry fully, but they are pretty much everywhere. And in this way, you just, you know, anything you try to do online in Russia, Yandex comes up as a very plausible tool that you would use. There's this phenomenon in China where the government went out of its way to help local tech giants beat out foreign competition. And one of the big things there, of course, is that the local firms are willing to cooperate with surveillance and censorship in a way that Google isn't, for example. But in Russia, Yandex didn't really have that sort of government help, did it? It just kind of grew by itself. Yeah, absolutely. For years, uh, the Kremlin and other state security services didn't really pay attention to the internet all that much. They were, the authorities here in Russia were quite slow to coming around to the idea that this was an area that they should pay attention to. And it, this could be paradoxical or sound odd to a Western audience, but for years, Russia's internet was really the freest internet or one of the freest internets that there it was in the world. And so Yandex, which started in 97 and grew in the early aughts and through the 2010s at that point, really, it wasn't touched. And so it was free to develop how it wanted to. And when did this mentality of the Kremlin start to change? When did they start to think that a company as powerful as Yandex was going to be a problem? One of the first moments uh, was in 2008 when Russia fought a five-day war with Georgia. Columns of Russian tanks and troops rolled into the American-backed former Soviet Republic of Georgia today after a nighttime barrage of artillery fire and rockets. Georgia said it was trying to retake control of South Ossetia, the breakaway province on Russia's border that's policed by Russian peacekeepers. Claiming more than 10 of its soldiers were killed in the night attack, Moscow said it would retaliate. One of Yandex's services is called Yandex News. It's a sort of news aggregator, very similar to Google News. And at that point, Russia's media was much more diversified. There was many more independent and liberal outlets. And so Yandex's aggregator was picking up liberal and independent media news about the war and putting it in its feed. And that really upset the Kremlin, which wanted its viewpoint to be highlighted. Several years later, when the Arab Spring swept uh, across the Middle East in 2011, and then protests kicked off in Moscow against uh, Vladimir Putin's rule in Russia a few months later, that also was really sort of this moment where the Kremlin saw the internet specifically as an arena that could be influential because all those protests in, their, in the Arab Spring and then in Moscow were organized through Facebook and similar social media tools. There is more political unrest tonight throughout Russia. The largest crowds in two decades have come out to protest what they're calling corruption by the government. Tens of thousands packed the streets of Moscow in the biggest anti-government demonstrations Russia has seen for 20 years. They shouted, Putin is a thief in Russia without Putin. The Kremlin realized what power that the internet actually could have. So in both the war three years earlier in 2008, and then in 2011, during these mass protests, it started to sort of realize that this was an arena that it would, if not control, at least pay close attention to. And what kind of pressure did it start to put on Yandex? So one of the first moments of pressure that Yandex actually faced was a potential takeover by Kremlin-linked oligarch Alisher Usmanov. 
he lobbied for the Kremlin's support on national security grounds to take over the company. And a year later, uh, in 2009, Yandex handed Russia's largest lender, the state-owned Sparebank, a so-called golden share, which allowed the bank to veto transactions involving more than a quarter of Yandex's stock. And this was essentially meant to satisfy the Kremlin that if there was any transactions the authorities weren't happy with, they would be able to step in and limit them. And what's been going on in the years since then? So for about a decade, this sort of golden share arrangement seemed to satisfy the Kremlin and interest in Yandex pretty much waxed and waned. It was sort of left to its own devices until the fall of 2018 when rumors surfaced that Sperdbank was now uh, hoping to buy a 30% stake in Yandex to protect it from so-called potential trouble. That morning in New York, when trading opened up, the company lost a billion dollars in market value over these worries. Now, how much leverage do you think Yandex has? I mean, it's it's one of Russia's biggest companies. It's majority owned by foreign investors. And obviously, if Russia clips its wings, its share price would take a huge hit. Do you think that matters to the authorities? To the authorities, it seems like not so much. Often it makes these decisions out of purely you know, their own interests. But when there were these rumors that we spoke about, about Sparebank buying a 30% share in Yandex, it really appeared to be that that was coming from the Kremlin saying, we, we, you know, we have to sort of rein in Yandex. And Yandex solved that with what seems to be a really neat solution. It took about a year, but they changed that golden share, that veto power over major transactions into what they call the public interest foundation. And this foundation has 11 seats on its board, three belong to Yandex, and the the other eight are divided up among influential business groups and state-affiliated universities. And they, you know, this structure now has that veto power that used to be with Sparebank. It seems like the Kremlin's policy towards Yandex varies a lot. Sometimes it's really concerned about foreign influence. Sometimes it just kind of lets things go. Why is there this inconsistency? So we've been speaking so far about the Kremlin as this sort of single entity. But to understand power in Russia, you need to understand more than just the Kremlin. Uh, the authorities are actually made up of these various rival groups. And there's a specific constituency that's known in Russian as the Siloviki. These are officials with ties to law enforcement. These are basically hardliners who are very protective of the regime, and they aim to control all facets of society including the internet, uh, which in recent years, as the conflict with the West has renewed, uh, it's became one of the arenas that they very much wanted to control. Yandex, for its part, uh, as this major tech company in Russia has gotten caught up in the middle of that process. And this is something that I actually talked with Tatyana Stanovaya about, who is the founder of the Russian political analysis site, R.Politik. From her perspective, she says that for the Siloviki, the Yandex Foundation was seen as a half victory. After very lengthy negotiations, they settled on this idea of a public interest foundation. It's a half measure. The logic behind it was that on one hand, there were the Siloviki who thought Yandex should become a Russian company. Voloj, the CEO, should quit, there should be a change of ownership, and the company should be registered in Russia and carry out all its operations in Russia, and its main interests should all be there. And on the other hand, you have the liberals in the government. They thought that the solution the Siloviki proposed would be catastrophic for the Russian markets. So there was a compromise that neither group would get its way with the company. This public interest foundation is basically a buffer. 
Tatiana says that the Public Interest Foundation has three main functions. The first is to block deals that would concentrate more than 10% of Yandex's stock under a single owner. The second is to control operations involving intellectual property. And the third, and this is another sensitive subject for the Siloviki, is to control operations involving personal data. So in this way, the foundation was supposed to somewhat mitigate the worries of the Siloviki. But to them, it's not a solution to the problem. To them, it's more like a forced surrender, meaning Yandex has not become a Russian company. And for today, the question is off the table. But that doesn't mean that it couldn't come up tomorrow. And I think that the security establishment of the Russian elite could find a pretext. Maybe not now, but in the next few years to revise this arrangement. We'll see. So where we are today is that Russia is talking about much tighter constraints on the internet. Uh, Talk to us a bit about what's been happening there. So in recent years, Russia has passed two key laws that have affected internet companies. The first is one that requires them to store data on servers in Russia and not in anywhere abroad. And the second law is this notorious so-called sovereign internet law. This means that a state-owned communications infrastructure would be created that would allow the country to cut itself off from the global internet. Uh, What this means is that there would be a sort of uh, bubble of sorts of Russian-owned services that would create an internet that would only be Russian. And from the Kremlin's perspective, what it sees through the sovereign internet would be a way to control what its citizens can see online. So it sounds like Russia is going for something much closer to China's model of the internet, where tech platforms can really only operate if they're friendly to the government. Yes, and uh, no simultaneously. So yes, in that it's attempting to, but one of the main things in recent years has been the fact that uh, a lot of these ventures haven't really succeeded. One of the key moments in the past few years was when Russia tried to block a popular messenger app here called Telegram. And for about a year It stated that the app was blocked, all the while authorities kept using it themselves, including state media channels, and even the Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov used it himself to communicate with foreign journalists. So it became this sort of farcical, absurdist thing where the country said this technological service was blocked, but it wasn't able to block it. Uh, And a year and a half later, it just announced, you know what, it's no longer blocked. Uh, So with the sovereign internet, it does remain to be seen whether this is something that Russia is actually able to pull off. And so while it may want to be China uh, in this sort of way, it sometimes falls short. What would it mean for a company like Yandex if the sovereign internet law really goes fully into effect? It would be massive. Yandex has been hoping to expand its business beyond Russia's borders for a long time. It hasn't been incredibly successful at that, but there are some ways that it's been, uh, you know, reaching out beyond Russia recently. Its driverless car program has been piloted in, in Detroit and in Las Vegas and in Israel. The more Russia tries to cut off from the global internet, the more that would hamper a company like Yandex, which is hoping to be not just Russian, but global. So at one level, this seems like a very specifically Russian story. There's this big company. It dominates in practically every area of its industry. It's in this cozy but tense relationship with the Kremlin. It's had to make some concessions. And yet at the end of your piece, you argue that this kind of relationship with the government is something that Western tech companies might have to start emulating. 
Right. Even, you know, even companies like Google and Facebook have started coming under pressure, uh, namely for their what's seen as their opaque content moderation processes. And this year, Facebook, in response to that, created this over this uh, so-called oversight board. It's similar to how Yandex's Public Interest Foundation has universities and big uh, companies that are part of it. Facebook's oversight board has legal and human rights luminaries who are able to review and overturn some of the platform's decisions. So this is sort of like a small-scale version of what Yandex's Public Interest Foundation is, and it sort of may foretell you know, not just the sort of demands that a company like Google and Facebook may face going forward, but the solutions that they might come up with to uh, retain some sort of independence in the way that Yandex has here in Russia. That's it for this episode of Deep Tech. This is a podcast just for subscribers of MIT Technology Review to bring alive the issues our journalists are thinking and writing about. You'll find Evan Gershkovich's article, Yandex's Balancing Act, in the September issue of the magazine. Before we go, I want to quickly tell you about MTech MIT, which runs from October the 19th through the 22nd. It's our flagship annual conference on the most exciting trends in emerging technology. This year, it's all about how we can build technology that meets the biggest challenges facing humanity, from climate change and racial inequality to pandemics and cybercrime. Our speakers include the CEOs of Salesforce and Alphabet X, the CTOs of Facebook and Twitter, the head of cybersecurity at the National Security Agency, the head of vaccine research at Eli Lilly, and many others. And because of the pandemic, it's an online event, which means it's both much cheaper than in previous years and much, much easier to get to. You can find out more and reserve your spot by visiting mtechmit.com. That's E-M. T-E-C-H-M-I-T.com. And you can use the code DEEPTECH50 for $50 off your ticket. Again, that's mtechmit.com with the discount code DEEPTECH50. DEEPTECH is written and produced by Anthony Green and edited by Jennifer Strong and Michael Riley. I'm Gideon Litchfield. Thank you for listening. This is MIT Technology Review.